Welcome to Infrastructure for a Better Future, a series where we have honest conversations about the infrastructure challenges we are facing and how we can build a better Aotearoa. In each episode, we talk to experts from here and overseas about what works when it comes to addressing these issues. We know that infrastructure has long-lasting impacts. Even in New Zealand, which is a relatively young country, we're often relying on infrastructure that was originally built 50 or 100 years ago. So what are the long-run impacts of infrastructure? And would we make better infrastructure decisions today if we thought more about the long-term? I'm Peter Nunns, Director of Economics at Te Wahanga, the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission. I'm honored to be joined today by my colleague, Nadine Dodge, Senior Economist in my team, and by Dr. Arthur Grimes, one of New Zealand's most eminent economists. Arthur is currently a senior fellow at the Motu Institute and professor of well-being and public policy at Victoria University Wellington School of Government. His previous roles include a stint as board chair of our Reserve Bank from 2003 to 2013. In 2018, NPR's Planet Money podcast described him as one of the most important economists in the world for his pioneering work on inflation targeting. Uh, And in addition to that, in his spare time, Arthur's also done some quite important work on infrastructure and long-run growth, which we're hoping to talk talk about today. So thanks for joining us, Arthur. Hi, Peter. Hi, Nadine. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for coming along. To start out, can you tell us a bit about why you're interested in infrastructure? Why is it such an important topic to look at in terms of research? Well, I've long been interested in economic development and um, basically raising people's incomes in in the country. Uh, And one of the areas that seems absolutely critical to me from a government policy perspective, and one of the few things perhaps that governments can do to raise incomes overall is to have uh, sensibly provided infrastructure. And it's a bit like Goldilocks, not too much, not too little. It has to be just right and the right kind. Thanks, thanks, Arthur. Um, so I'd like to dig a little bit into the question of long-term impacts, right? Because you can think about the immediate impacts of infrastructure. We're paying some people to build something. You can think about the impacts on the day of opening. Everyone's excited to rush across it. Um, but, but there's long-term impacts that play out over decades or even centuries. Um, our legislation actually asks us to, to take what, what it describes as a long-term view, developing a 30-year infrastructure strategy. But I, I, I kind of wonder sometimes whether this is, in fact, long-term enough. Uh, I'm quite captivated by the example of Roman roads, right, which were built 2,000 years ago and which are still shaping patterns of economic activity in Europe today. So when we think about infrastructure and living standards, how far out should we look? Well, I think we've got examples around the world, as you say, with the Roman roads still affecting things 2,000 years later. In Japan, we know that uh, um, infrastructure and the, the pattern of cities uh, prevailed both after the Second World War relative to what it was in the first uh, before the Second World War. Uh, in New Zealand, we know that certain um, current outcomes for iwi members, for instance, reflect the Raupatu or the confiscations of land in the uh, 1860s. So that's 160 years ago. So um, there are actions that take place uh, both at the social level and the infrastructure level that can have an extremely long-lived effect. When it comes to infrastructure. Uh, we have um, often the things that we put in place are still going to be around in 100, 200, 300 years' time. Uh, the main ports in New Zealand, of course, are where the main ports were in the 19th century, um, and some have developed more than others uh, as economic um, uh, you know, circumstances allowed. 
Um, the rail network was put in place in the late 1800s, largely early 1900s. Um, that's been uh, important in terms of uh, directing goods, traffic, etc., to, to different places. So yeah, we should definitely be thinking in infrastructural terms about at least 100 years, I would have thought, uh, for our major infrastructure. Perhaps some forms of infrastructure are more short-lived. Um, I've done a lot of work on broadband and uh, the installation of fibre broadband. I guess that's one where you would have a shorter time frame, just because we know that technologically um, fibre will probably be obsolete and you know in a couple of decades or something people will use something different so it probably depends on the nature of the infrastructure that we're thinking about at what time frame we've got but when it's solid infrastructure like roads ports rail uh, etc we we have to think very long term because it's going to affect where the population goes in the long term i mean is this just a question of of, of infrastructure has these good long-term effects so we should have more of them right does this always work does it fail sometimes? It sometimes fails. And so let me give you an example of two bridges in New Zealand. Um, one is the uh, Bridge to Nowhere, the very famous Bridge to Nowhere near Whanganui, uh, which was built after the First World War to open up the land for farming for uh, returned servicemen. Uh, and um, now it's a tourist example of uh, a white elephant that's in the middle of a you know, semi-national park setting with no, no roads around it. Um, clearly a complete failure in terms of infrastructure, uh, expensive bridge at the time. Uh, another bridge uh, was the Auckland Harbour Bridge, uh, which I um, apparently was taken over when I was two years old in, in, in the pram uh, on the opening day. Uh, and that, was, that opened up the North Shore of Auckland uh, to development. There was hardly anybody on the North Shore in those days, I think 20,000 people or so. Uh, and it would never have developed very much if it hadn't have been for that harbour bridge being built. So that was a situation where the infrastructure was demonstrably successful in completely changing the nature of Auckland. Uh, and um, whereas the other infrastructure was completely unsuccessful in changing uh, around where Whanganui was. Uh, I've also done work with um, a PhD student um, at, at Waikato and, and with Jacques Pote um, on the massive infrastructure development that happened uh, when Brasilia was built as the capital of Brazil. Uh, they built uh, radial highways going from Brasilia out to all the rest of the parts of Brazil in an attempt to develop the rest of Brazil, especially the Amazon uh, basin. And um, essentially what we found is that it had a small effect on populations elsewhere and zero effect on productivity elsewhere. So this is the biggest uh, regional development um, and infrastructure project ever attempted in the world, and it was demonstrably unsuccessful. Uh, the agglomeration economies of Sao Paulo and Rio de, Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro just kept on dominating. So, yeah, infrastructure doesn't necessarily have good effects. It can have it can be very expensive white elephants, or it can have really positive effects. Is there any way to know which is which in advance, or is there some uncertainty here? There's a lot of uncertainty, and I think that brings into um, uh, perspective the importance of a way of thinking um, of that economists have, uh, which is called real option theory. Um, and it's built on financial options, the theory of financial options, where um, something opens up the opportunity to um, exercise uh, something following a decision, um, but not the obligation. So in the sense, the Auckland Harbour Bridge opened up the opportunity to develop the North Shore, but not the uh, obligation to develop the North Shore. Um, and the, road to, the bridge to nowhere opened up the opportunity to 
open up the, the country um, around Whanganui, but not the obligation. It never never happened. So we can think about that as um, it's a good way of decision making under uncertainty. Uh, and the environmental um, people call this uh, adaptive management, uh, very much the same idea. One sees, um, tries to learn about what the future is going to be by doing small steps and then working out whether that's going to, um, whether you should keep on going with the particular kind of strategy that you've got. Um, so, for instance, in the North Shore case, built the, built the Harbour Bridge, but you didn't necessarily build all the highways um, on the northern side of the um, isthmus uh, at that stage. They gave you the option to do that, but not the obligation. And it's a way of thinking about how to deal with uncertainty. And similarly, they actually built the foundations of the bridge so you could actually clip on additional lanes. That was a feature of, of that design. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So the clip-ons were a great example of yeah. the of the um, real option that was created to make to transform a four-lane bridge into an eight-lane bridge. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks so much. I know that's something that our organization has an interest in as well. Quite often we think about infrastructure as just like a, a set decision and either it will succeed or it will fail. And we just do our best to plan for the central scenario. But I actually think that we need to think much more flexibly about designing ourselves options so that we can succeed under a variety of scenarios because we actually know that we're not particularly good at forecasting population growth as a country, nor as really any other country, because it's actually quite quite uncertain. Um, I thought that those, in, those examples of those bridges were kind of good examples about how long-term trends in where population goes um, can actually be a bit uncertain. And it's quite interesting to see the factors that led the North Shore to be such an interesting place or a very popular place to, to build houses. I know that you've done a lot of work thinking about long-term trends of population and economic growth. I know you did a paper in 2016 looking at 80 years of urban development in New Zealand. What do we know about why some places grow and why other places don't? And what can that tell us about what we should do for infrastructure? Um. That's a really interesting topic. Uh, as you say, we looked at population growth over 80 years in New Zealand and tried to relate it to infrastructure and other factors. Uh, when it came down to it, the, the biggest factors that really drove growth were um, climate. People wanted to, as people got richer, they wanted to live in warmer, drier places, or at least warmer places, sunnier places, uh, hence the development in the northern half of the North Island. Uh, and uh, they wanted to be near big cities. Um, so we didn't find that infrastructure itself was as important as what we call agglomeration, which is that people, um, as, uh, as it has happened around the world, that people have wanted to be connected to the main city, which in New Zealand, of course, is Auckland. Now, what that means for infrastructure in that case is that the way you can make places closer to Auckland in a functional sense is by building good infrastructure to Auckland. Um, so it seems that the transport links that have allowed places in the northern half of the North Island to be connected to Auckland very easily, uh, more, more easily than they would have been otherwise, um, have been critical in the development of that northern part of the North Island because that's where people wanted to move to for climatic reasons. Um, also, it's obviously close to the, um, the rest of the world in the sense that uh, Auckland International Airport's very important gateway as well, and, and the, that airport seems to have been important in, in that development uh, phase. So, you know, we've, we know that people want to move near large cities. We know that people um, want to be connected to large cities if they're not in there already. Um, but we also know that, you know, just features such as a nice environment, a nice climate, people want to move there. Um, people have moved to other parts of New Zealand which have got a very nice climate. 
even if they're not as economically as advanced. So that's been important as well. Yeah, you can kind of see that the North Shore had everything going for it. It's sort of the bridge took it from basically being part of Northland to being part of Auckland. It had beaches, it had sun, and all of a sudden it was functionally right next to Auckland CBD, whereas before it was actually functionally quite far away. It was. And, and the interesting thing was, if you look at the literature in the 1950s, there was a huge amount of opposition to the Auckland Harbour Bridge saying that it should not be built because no, why would anybody want to move to the North Shore? Um, there's nothing there. Well, of course, there was nothing there because people couldn't get there beforehand very easily. Um, so this is the uh, difficulty, I think, in, in terms of thinking out these long, long times. I mean, if you look at, I mean, we're very poor at forecasting short-term population trends. I, I did some work in Christchurch, for instance, um, looking at forecasts for Christchurch in the years prior to the earthquake and not affected by the earthquake. But if you look well before then, uh, people completely misjudged the uh, the growth of some of the um uh, you know, Waimakariri and, and places like that on the outskirts of, of Christchurch. Um, the, the growth turned out to be far, far greater than what were, even the high forecasts were of stats New Zealand at the, you know, 15 years before. So we shouldn't just be thinking about building infrastructure based on current forecasts. Current forecasts are very inaccurate of population trends. That's why we have to think long term, we have to think about scenarios, but in particular, we have to think about how do we create the options to build further if we do the first stage um, and build that in now. Um, and that could be, you know, setting aside, um, you know, easements and all sorts of things to make sure that we can build um, future roads and future rail links or widen roads or widen rail links, etc. cetera, um, for, the, for the future, even if that's not intended to be the central case at the moment. So that's an interesting point, right, where it sometimes feels like, we go through infrastructure business cases, say, and they come out with this very binary view of what you should do, right? Either you should build the project or you should walk away from it. And it strikes me that that we're not always presenting decision makers with practical actions they can take while they're waiting for more information, right? Yeah. So you've mentioned, you know, easement acquisition, sort of corridor acquisition is one of those, but are there others that we should be thinking about? Uh, that, that, that sort of give, buy us time, allow us to, to do something productive while we wait? Yeah, well, I think um, you know, one of the lessons about real, there's two key lessons about real options analysis. One is that we should be cautious before taking irrevocable decisions um, that are costly. Um, and, um, and we should also try and stage uh, projects with, and build in what we call active learning. So have having um, stages where we can actually, if we do the first part of it, does that tell us something more about what's the likely effect of building the next stage? So if you think about uh, public transport, for instance, before uh, perhaps building a, a very expensive uh, public transport network, we could try and improve the existing public transport without the huge expense of, a, of you know, an irrevocable expense. Um, for instance, you know, taking away all parking on main roads and having bus lanes that are freely available 24 hours a day for buses without any parking on them, all those sorts of things, which are almost costless to do. Um, bringing in congestion charging, etc., which is expensive, but nowhere near as expensive as building very expensive um, public transport. So the, there are things that we can do, and we, then we can learn about whether um, people are actually starting to switch in the way that we would anticipate they switch um, with a bigger investment. Um, I've you know, given simple examples, for instance, of seawalls as well. If you know, we're worried about adaptation to climate change, um, you can build a, a seawall, but instead of building just a once-only seawall, make sure it's got the foundations there where you can build a higher seawall and a bigger seawall if you need to, rather than having to start from scratch again. These sorts of things. That's, um, again, we can, we can do things in stages. We can learn from what we've done. 
It's a really crucial part of infrastructure planning. It's really interesting that you mentioned that because our last podcast was with Brad Singh, who's the manager of transport at Wellington City Council. And he talked about that's exactly what they're doing with seawalls in Wellington at the moment. They're building them with a bigger base than you need for today's seawall. So I guess if people are interested in that, they should go back to listen to the most recent episode with Brad on how that's happening in practice. Great. Well, I'm, re- I'm pleased to hear it because it's something, I think it's such a great example of how you can, it may be more expensive to build it and the way, you know, with a bigger foundation now, but it opens up the option to um, to be able yeah. to add to it later, which you wouldn't have done if you'd have built a smaller yeah. one to start the, with. The other example of real world, real options analysis I saw the other day is the cycle line that just opened on Kent and Cambridge Terrace. And the new way Wellington City Council is doing it is basically build the whole cycle lane out of plastic pieces. And it allows the plastic pieces to be moved and adapted. They send people out to go monitor how it's working and then it actually allows them to rebuild it and change it and eventually build it back with concrete. Whereas if you just go in with concrete from the start, if it doesn't work out the way you planned it or the drainage isn't right or people aren't using it the way you thought they would, you you can't really change it or if you do change it, it's incredibly costly. So I'm quite interested to see how we could use that sort of plastic bike lane example, like wider in infrastructure. What, what can we do to actually make things that we can change them once we see how they're being used and make changes? Well, yeah. the, the Swiss have this wonderful phrase in, in their rail network planning, right? Organization before electronics, before concrete, right? Mm-hmm. So the first thing they'll do is optimize the timetable, mm-hmm. right? Then they'll sort of invest in, say, a signaling system to allow the train more trains to run on the same tracks. And then eventually, once they've pushed that to the limit, then they might build something, right? Yeah. And it means that by the time you get to that point, you know exactly, as you say, Arthur, how this stuff works and where the demand is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just great examples of active learning. You mm-hmm. know? And, and active learning is just so important and rather than just rushing to a complete final solution. So uh, we don't, often that's not the, you know, we, we get things wrong. So we can learn it's much better. Um, and, and sometimes we pitch things that sound simple to us, right? Like just do a simple cost of, you know, cost benefit analysis or even more, just do a simple cost effectiveness analysis. Tell me the unit costs that you're proposing, right? And we, we sometimes get back the view that actually that's too complex to do. It's too difficult to do. It might be too difficult for decision makers to understand. What can we do to lift the game incrementally and help people learn? Well, I, I teach cost-benefit analysis to uh, introductory economic students, so it's not that difficult. Um, but what I always start off with is saying, look, when you're evaluating a project, you should be writing down, uh, listing all the possible benefits, listing all the possible costs, noting whether they're certain or uncertain, etc. Um, and uh, and then you start quantifying them what, uh, to the extent you can. And I said. What's the option? Would you ignore some costs? Would you ignore some benefits? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. So the basic principle of cost-benefit analysis, which is that you start by listing all your costs and listing all your benefits, just seems so um, demonstrably uh, correct uh, that you, you know, you, why would you ignore anything? Um, then it becomes more difficult to obviously price some of these things. But then you can run, you know, and people are encouraged to run a lot of scenarios, etc., like that. And that's where you can start building in some of these more complicated techniques, such as real options. You know, if there's lots of different scenarios, does this one allow you to open up that scenario, etc.? But just starting by saying, here are all the benefits and here are all the costs, and then starting to put some numbers around that is a very good discipline. And that's just kind of at the level of like, understanding the topic you're dealing with and being able to do some algebra, yeah. 
Well, it's, it's, it's even just able to do two lists. Yeah. One list of costs and one list of benefits <laughs> would be quite good and then some arithmetic. You don't even have to do the algebra. Yeah. It's, um, but I just can't imagine why anybody would not want to list all the costs and list all the benefits mm-hmm. when they're evaluating the possibilities for a project and saying whether they're certain, uncertain. Um, and of course, we have to differentiate between risk where we can put probabilities and uncertainty where we can't. But just doing those sorts of things, is, it's just so basic. Um, I can't understand why anybody would not want to do that. So imagine that someone has done a cost-benefit analysis, and let's say a cost-benefit analysis of one means that you spent $100, you get $100 back in benefits. Cost-benefit of two, you spend $100, you get $200 back in benefits. On the other side, BCR 0.5 means that you spent $100 and you get $50 in benefits. You're looking at a project, uh, it has BCR 0.5, but then the decision maker says, "But, but this is such a great opportunity for my city. I think that we should do it. Like, what would your response be to that? And what what do we do in that situation? Well, in that situation, I think we should do two things. One is um, say, okay, well, let's list out what the opportunities are. Are they included in all the benefits that we've already listed? And if they're not, then it may be that our um, benefit-cost ratio has been inaccurately calculated because they haven't included all the benefits that somebody thought there there was going to be. Um, other times I've seen people talk like that, and then when they start listing out the benefits and et cetera, uh, the opportunities, they've actually already been included anyway. So um, I think, you know, so first of all, try and get clarity, um, get, the, get the facts on the table. What, what are the benefits? What are these opportunities we might have missed? And that may change the BCR calculation. Or if they're uncertain, let's put some probabilities around them or whatever, do some scenarios. Um, that seems to me the most important thing. The second um, thing I would do is say, okay, this is going to cost x hundred million dollars and you think it's a great opportunity what else could we spend that x hundred million dollars on um could we spend it better on mental health could we spend it better on uh improving um teacher aids and schools to lift our education standards etc and start thinking about the you know what economists call the opportunity cost of that money because it could well be that yes this is an opportunity to do this particular project but actually it's also that same money gives us the opportunity to improve the education system or the mental health uh, situation or whatever so let's think about and why you think it's better to build your project, your pet project, rather than spend more money on mental health, say. And that's a a good um, sort of point to end on, I think, because that's actually one of the things that we've been asked to do at Te Wahanga is come up with what what we're calling an infrastructure priority list, right? So a set of things that could be funded but aren't currently funded. Um, and if, if you had such a thing, you know, and it was reasonably comprehensive, that would give you a sense of what the opportunity costs are, right? Because you'd have a sense of what the other other opportunities that might be ready to come to market. Yeah, and that's always what Waka Kotahi used to do in, in terms of ranking roads. And, and you would start from the top with the ones that had the highest benefit cost ratios and you'd work your way down. And then, of course, ministers would get involved and choose their pet projects. But at least you had a had an um, explicit ranking of projects that they would start with the ones with the highest benefit cost ratios and work down because that takes into account the opportunity cost. Uh, you can't build everything that's got a benefit cost ratio of bigger than one. We just don't have the the, the resources or the or the, the you know money etc. to do that. So you start at the top. That's got the best bang for your buck, and you work your way down. Thanks very much, Arthur. That's really insightful. Um, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to have you along. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find out more about the work Tiwai Hanga is doing to transform infrastructure in Aotearoa at tuaihanga.govt.nz.